no one ever thought enough to say, actually, there's kind of a intrinsic moves management happening. We're not part of it, but we can improve on that. And so to even know to be conceptually focused on that and build your awareness, the awareness building through listening and empathy, that's where you listen. Welcome back to What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Constant Contact. Today, I'm interviewing Evan Wildstein. Evan, once the lead singer of a rock band, found himself on a path of servant leadership in the nonprofit sector. With two decades of experience under his belt, Evan transitioned from captivating audiences on stage to creating meaningful relationships in the philanthropic world. His well-rounded background in business management, coupled with a strong passion for arts and public programs, gives him a unique perspective on servant leadership. What sets Evan apart, though, is his ongoing quest to redefine servant leadership, moving away from the old paradigm of selflessness and sacrifice towards a focus on community building and self-growth. In this episode, Evan and I talk about the positive impact of servant leadership in nonprofit operations and how empathy can turn a fundraising relationship from simple to sublime. There is so much to learn in this episode, and I can't wait to dive in. So let's go meet Evan. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with my friend, Evan Wildstein. Evan, welcome to What the Fundraising. Thanks for having me. Hello. Hello. So we are here to talk about all things servant leadership, your book that just came out. So why don't you start, though, with sharing a little bit about your background and who you are, because I think you show up in this space in a really unique way as a frontline fundraiser, but also as a thought leader in this space. So just share a little bit about you and what brings you to our conversation today. Sure. And you're catching me at an interesting moment. Last night, I have a a brother visiting, a brother, he's my only brother visiting. We went to see Manchester Orchestra and Jimmy Eat World last night. And the fun part about that, I've been seeing Jimmy Eat World in concert live for like quarter of a century, but that used to be me. I used to be a lead singer in rock and roll bands. And so when we, it's so funny to make the correlation between like front man of a band and a frontline fundraiser, not to say that every fundraiser needs to be in the spotlight, front of the curtain person. And in fact, the ironic thing, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure is like the notion of servant leadership is that like, that's not the quintessential servant leader is not traditionally the one in the front, but forever, my teen years through my twenties and a bit into my thirties, I was a rock musician. Getting into the nonprofit space was sort of a, I had a degree that cobbled together nonprofit stuff, business management, and then I'm an arts music guy, like through and through. And so I just needed to get a job, did well in a couple nonprofit fundraising courses in college. And the strong recommendation of one of my favorite professors in my undergrad and my parents, like do stuff that makes you happy, but also be able to buy coffee because that's nice to do that. Like everyone else landed haphazardly, but happily in the nonprofit space. And I've been here, I'm in my 20th year doing this stuff. About half of that was in artistic, cultural, public programs, operations, like outward facing stuff. And the last half has been in philanthropy and that's broad brush. I've been a chief development officer in a small consultancy doing capital campaigns and other things. And it's been... What my dad tells me is at the end of my career, hopefully I can look back and say that made sense because right now it's just like throwing a little baby into the swimming pool with the swimmies, figuring it out. Oh my gosh. I didn't know that about your rock musician past. 
So I love that. And I will be Googling or trying to find some videos of that after this. Okay. So we're going to talk a lot about servant leadership today. First, let's sort of define what is servant leadership. We'll go into the details around that for a second, but just to give people sort of like a baseline understanding. And then I'm really curious to know like when you first discovered servant leadership and what that framework did for you as you were evolving in your nonprofit leadership role. You're asking the question also at a good time because I've done a few of these conversations and as I listen back, my responses have been so long and poor, but the way that I think about it, which is the opposite of what a lot of people codify servant leadership as like this outward facing, everyone else is more important than you, you serve and that is your leadership momentum. But servant leadership, one of the core traits, which we can talk about is this commitment to the growth of other people. And another one is building community. I sort of see it, and you know this well, because we've worked together on this, as this bit of a continuum where like the end of the journey is building community or a built community. And it's cyclical because I say a built community builds community. And so it's a leadership philosophy that pays attention to the needs and growth opportunities in other people and other staff members and colleagues. But at the same time, it doesn't force you to give so much. If you follow the servant leadership tag, you know, the, this thing for anyone who's watching, what people our age call the pound symbol, but now it's a hashtag on LinkedIn. You see a lot of people posit what they think it is. And it's this, a lot of folks talk about how it's just you give of yourself and there's this caretaking martyrdom philosophy to it, but you have a battery. Everyone's got a battery. And it's interesting when I'm often the voice who comments on those like servant leadership is putting everyone else in front of you. And it's like, well, actually Bob Greenleaf, who coined the phrase servant leadership, spoke a lot about intrinsic healing as a primary motivator. You can want to make your teams better. You can want to make, and here I am saying I had a short answer for you. I don't, it's another long one, but healing is another core behavior of servant leadership. And it's as much healing in our space. It might be repairing a relationship with a donor, but it's as much about taking care of yourself. So you can continue to give from the abundance of your battery. So it's different in my view than all those other leadership philosophies that are about your authority or your position or the boastfulness of your great man or great woman personality. Servant leadership looks at everything with that, again, continuum end goal of having a community that is so strongly built that it wants to redo the cycle and grow and grow and grow. Okay. I love that. And I feel like we had maybe a year ago or more, one of those LinkedIn conversations where I had a lot of misconceptions about the term servant leadership being more rooted in martyrdom perhaps, or this sort of like terminology around like selflessness. And you really educated me around it too, which was helpful because I worry about that fix it addiction or sort of like over helpfulness sometimes in this sector in sacrifice of ourselves. And so learning more about the actual framework around servant leadership has been really helpful for me to sort of understand exactly what you're talking about. When did that framework arrive in your trajectory and what has it changed for you in terms of personally how you think about your own leadership or how you show up? Like what behaviors has it sort of modified in your day-to-day -day as you've embraced the framework? I think everyone to an extent has heard the phrase servant leadership, but it's something we're all familiar with, at least in writing. And there are plenty of people out there who purport to call themselves servant leaders. I too, like my dad said at the end of my career, I'll make sense of it. I like to think of myself as a servant leader in training and that it's something you need to continuously lean into. 
consistently all these things. And I've, I've spoken about this before in a couple other conversations, but there's a really great book that's, I say, similar to the one that I wrote because it's short, little vignettes. It's called Fortuitous Encounters. One of the co-editors, co-authors is a guy named Larry Spears, who's become a dear friend of mine. He's the what you might consider like the living expert in North America on servant leadership. And it's these little vignettes of servant leadership experiences. And I came to that book maybe about eight or 10 years ago Interestingly enough, it's also one that we used in grad school, and it took a little bit of a different lens through which I thought I understood this servant leadership thing. To me back then, it was like servant leadership and thought leadership were conflated. I used to see people talking outwardly about servant leadership a lot, kind of like I'm doing now. But it opened my eyes for this notion of how we can put ourselves better in the shoes of and with the people we intend to serve. And one thing that's come to me over time is the very distinct way we use the phrase. When I write it out, I do servant-leadership. There's a distinction there. I think when people think of servant leadership as two different words, it's like the connotation of service. Like who wants to be a servant? Nobody really wants to be a servant. So in some regard, Bob Greenleaf and others who've been talking, writing, and speaking about this for 50 plus years, there's a little bit of a paradox in like the choice of words and how that might have prevented this from getting its way into the mainstream. But there was a great uh, leader on this, Pat Flotico, who in the book, I, I do a great quote from her that talks about the connotation between service and leadership. And like the hyphen creates a boost between those two words. It's one can't exist without the other and they feed into one another. So I read Fortuitous Encounters. That got me really interested in this. And then at some point I figured I would go back to grad school. And so the program I chose uh, in 2020, almost 20 years into my career, I said, it's, if not late than never. It's probably one of the leading programs on servant leadership in the States, at least. It's a Northwest in Spokane, Washington. But I did this program and focused a lot of my studies on servant leadership. And the book is basically a narrative vamped up version of my master's thesis. So I loosely came to it through hearing about it and then I read that book and then I started doing a little bit more research and figured it was something that I wanted to lean into more. And frankly, one of the things I said when I talked with Becky and John about this and other folks, it's like some version of this book is kind of like if I could go back in time and give it to the version of Evan at the very tip of his career. Like, Evan, you're used to being in front of people singing rock and roll and like right in that spotlight. You listen okay, but you're not a great listener. You purport to be empathetic, but you don't really know what it means to be present with other people to, if you don't understand what they're going through, just physically be there with them. And there's all these behaviors that in the annals of servant leadership, I focus on 10 of them in the book and in my research, but there's kindness is not a codified behavior of servant leadership. Patience isn't, but these are all great things that are woven into this fabric. So I was probably in some capacity bad or needing growth in all of these areas. And that's why it's been so fascinating for me because I'm often the person who's super comfortable talking outwardly, leading a meeting, being you know, I'm tiny by stature. I'm like just over five feet tall, but I'm very comfortable in that perspective. And I've had to really, even into my 40s, practice all of these things. During COVID, I had a post-it note next to my computer monitor that just said, listen on it. Like I had to remind myself to put mute on, on all these Zoom meetings. It's just, I don't need to lead everything. I think that was some sort of a haphazard answer to your good long question. <laughs> No, that I, I think it's really helpful. And maybe we can actually outline what the 10 
pillars are that you talk about in your book. And then I think there are a few of them that it'd be interesting to go into in more detail. And I think about each of them, actually, as you sort of said at the beginning, as an ongoing evolution and something that I'm not stagnantly good in. Some days I'm a much better listener than others. Some days I'm much more better at empathy than others. And so I really think about like my relationship to each of these pillars as sort of an ongoing process and trying to understand and sense the pieces in my life that impact my ability to flex that skill even and the interconnectedness of all these pieces. So will you go through what those 10 are for folks who are like, okay, I'm taking notes. I've pulled over on the side of the road. Yeah. Will you just break those down for us really quick? Sure. Yes. And please, if you're driving, pull over, send me an email. I'll get on the phone and go through this. You can read this later. What does the sign say? Text drive now, text later or something. Right. Uh, I'll list the 10. And for people who are listening, I've had the great pleasure to work with Mallory on making better sense of this servant leadership philosophy from the fundraising lens in a way that can be activated on. The way I've been thinking about it is the 10 that I focused on in the book is kind of like an interesting list of ingredients. In each of these ingredients, it's like you're making brownies, right? Or pancakes and you've got blueberries and chocolate chips. Like those things are all delicious on their own. But like when you put them together in such a way, there's kind of a continuum based process to this. So I'll go through the version if it's okay, that came from the work that you and I had to do together or got to do together. It was my pleasure. So I reference a lot the things that Bob Greenleaf, his name was Robert Kiefer Greenleaf, but I, I say Bob because I feel like we in a spiritual way knew one another. He wrote about a lot of different things, but the, the folks who came after him researched what he spoke about, the lectures he gave, the books and essays he wrote, and they, they pulled out the 10 things. Larry Spears, the gentleman I mentioned, did the crux of this work. And so the 10, just going down this list fairly quickly, are conceptualization, awareness, listening, empathy, healing, persuasion, commitment to the growth of other people, foresight, stewardship, and then where I love to land, building community. In that order, we can focus on a couple of these that you might find interesting. This idea, Bob Greenleaf said that conceptualization is the, I'm quoting him, the prime leadership talent. And when I went back after you and I did our work together, I reread his essay, The Servant as Leader, which he wrote in 1970, sort of groundbreaking, but has in some ways long since been forgotten. And like the Simon Sinek's and the Brene Browns and all the other folks that we buy all their books, it's like they all looked to Greenleaf for guidance and inspiration in the servant leadership mindset. They've just put an interesting spin on it. But I feel like him saying that conceptualization is the prime leadership talent, I took prime to mean the most important. But I think of prime in like the primary, the first. And so one of the things that I came to after rereading this from our work is that beginning this whole servant leadership journey, whether it's by yourself or with a team or with donor growth, beginning with this notion of conceptualization. It's like we say that nonprofit fundraisers and others should be great listeners. And in fact, listening is supposed to be the way servant leaders respond to any problem is by listening first. But it's like, how do you even know that you should listen? How do you know that that's the angle you need to come from. You need to have this conceptual awareness that there might be a problem or something that can be improved upon. So it's that place of, see, I've done a little more thinking on this mm, since we worked together. I'm, a few I'm weeks into ago. It. <laughs> it. It all just sort of made sense. And for folks who are listening, the problem that I had was taking these ingredients and turning it into something that 
Like people could read the book and say, all right, if I want to be more self-aware, Evan gives me three practical ways that I can do that with myself, with my CEO, with board members, but how it fits into the landscape or like the A to Z of the process and like how that can cycle all over again, my mind got blown. I love how you're thinking about this idea of conceptualization, because I feel like when we talked before too, it was this like, what can happen without that happening first? And what builds on each other versus what are things that can happen tangentially? And uh, (laughs) I think that's right. I think so. We'll see. Somebody will correct me. And so I love how that has evolved in how you're thinking about these pieces. I'm curious, is there one piece of servant leadership that you feel like people have the most trouble with? Where they're like, all these things feel like I can flex here or strengthen here, or I even feel bought into strengthen here, but there's a piece of it that they experience more resistance around? I would say in my conversations with people, with colleagues, conversations about the book, there have been misconceptions based on my perspective. And one of them is how empathy fits into this. And I point to Rob Volpe, who wrote, um, tell me more about that. I think that's the title of his book, super nice guy. And he points to these different cognitive and effective modes of empathy, where one is like, I can sit across from a donor and talk about cancer care because I or a loved one have experienced cancer. I have some unique personal backgrounds and experience with it. And then the other, the interview I did in the book around the notion of empathy was this CEO of a large Texas social service nonprofit who he was new to the work and there was a major, major principal level donor who was giving seven plus figures to other like organizations. And in his mind, he thought, but this makes sense if I get close enough with so-and-so maybe they will shower us with the same level of philanthropy. And what he ended up doing was a bit more of like a cognitive empathy thing where he physically picked himself up and went with this person to meetings for issues that they cared about. I think it was like senior citizens and creating homes for senior citizens. And over time, that level of being what we in servant leadership academia talk about this, there I am also perspective. It's like, you may not experientially know what someone's going through, but if you can be there also with them, like physically go with them, be on Zoom meetings with them, there may be a way to build empathy through that practice and presence. And that version of empathy in these conversations, like people have said, ah, servant leadership's kind of old school. We're all about empathy-based leadership now. It's like, but what do you mean by that? Because I found there are those two roads of empathy. The one that's just like, I can understand how everyone is feeling because I'm empathetic. But the disparity between empathy and sympathy comes up there. But not all empathy also needs to be experiential. You can build that skill. And that's why in this book and in, in the things I talk about, the ingredients in the book are all supposed to be very practical. Like you can read the book and tomorrow, go test some of them out. It's not this very theoretical, like I need to sit with this for three months and figure out what Mr. Wildstein meant by that. So empathy is the one that, not in any sort of detrimental way, maybe like a resistance to building the chops or like the weightlifting that comes in to realizing that you may not have had heart disease in your family, but maybe there are ways to build that experience by being there with donors or other staff or programmatic people that can get you to understand the very baseline. We've all worked with and for CEOs and other folks who just refuse Like, why do I need to go check out the program? The donors should be embarrassed that they're not supporting this work. And it's like, well, if they never, I actually had a a grant funder threaten to pull funding back because of a a CEO who just refused to come to anything. And they were like, how can we really trust that you're going to be good stewards of this money if your chief executive person can't be bothered to come to like a 40 minute 
thing that their also perspective is the one that I think some people misinterpret. And there's so much potential for building these transformational relationships. Like all philanthropy has a transaction. People are going to bite me for saying that. Like there needs to be a transaction. Like if every fundraiser never thinks about money, like there has to be a transaction somewhere in the journey, whether you've asked for it or just built the case so interestingly. So empathy for me, again, long answer. And then the other one that I would mention just very briefly is that in the research on servant leadership, although conceptualization is one of the things that Greenleaf wrote about and then the other researchers have found, when I think of the behaviors of servant leadership, I think of them all as verbs. You listen as a verb. You can be empathetic verbally. But conceptualization to a lot of the academics, it's like such a theoretical thing. And I don't disagree with that. And it's the reason I think why conceptualization comes up so much for me and in our conversation too. It's like the place you start from because I point to a couple ways you can conceptualize like the framework of how your gift operating procedures are going, how your CRM is working. But it is sort of a ethereal, like when we think of a concept, it's a very mind construct. And so it's very cognitive in that way. So again, super spirally answer, but I'll pause now. (laughs) No, I I love that. And the empathy one is really interesting to me. I feel like that is, I'm curious if you've come across this, but I feel like because of the way that empathy also often gets mistaken for sympathy, people don't think that their donors need it. They feel incredibly empathetic around the folks who, or maybe they feel less resistance to activating their empathy around the beneficiaries of their program or the community that they're advocating for. But their beliefs around their donor population having access, power, resources, all of those things make it hard for them to believe even sometimes that their donors need empathy or that they need empathy with their donors. I think because they're conflating it with sympathy, but I'm just curious, have you come across that at all? Maybe a little bit. What I hear sometimes from people. This came up a little bit. I was talking with Ria Wong recently about some of these things. What we hear, and I'm in also the community-centric fundraising, they have a, a really neat Slack channel. And so there's a lot of equitable conversations that go on in there. And this notion of, I think some of the pushback I've gotten when I was writing the book and having a, a, a few people ghost read it, it's like, should we as fundraisers, and in the way that I talk about fundraisers, what I try and mean is really anyone in an organization whose work over the arc of time translates to philanthropy. That is, you know, major gift officer, that's a prospect researcher, that can be program officers who don't have fundraising as part of their thing, but they're really great conversational counterpoints when you go out on visits. Again, back to the notion of like how much we give of ourselves when we serve. Some of the pushback, which is warranted, I think it's like, I'm making $65,000 a year out on a visit with someone who spends my annual salary on their pet's dog food. How in any way, shape, or form can either of us find synergy through empathy there? And I don't argue or disagree with that point. In some ways, how can you sort of encourage and a lot look at a lot of these positions that are getting posted? A lot of these wages are like poverty level. Like you're going to have a major gift officer come on for like $32,000 a year. Like quite literally, you could go work at a coffee shop and like there would be comparability in like the decision there. 
you're not going to ask like the seven, eight, nine figure donor to like come down empathetically to the level of like the lowly gift officer. And at the same time, should we expect the gift officer to just forego their ideals and their beliefs to try and empathize with or bring that journey of empathy? And so it's, that's why this is all a continuum. I think there's no great answer for it, but that's a little bit of the pushback and not just from things like CCF, community-centric fundraising, but in this notion of how we're trying to be encouraging trust-based philanthropy and equity. We are still a long way away from it, but the thing that I'm really happy about is that, I don't know if I said this in the book, but I talk a lot about how these conversations have moved from the index, which is like the end of the book, to the table of contents. Like These conversations are now front and center. It's this moment and what we do with it that it will either make or break. And then people like us, we're sort of in like that midpoint of our career. I don't want to assume anyone's age. I'll assume we've been around for a bit, but we've also got a lot of road ahead of us. Like in 10, 20 years, are we going to look back and say, well, we tried in the 2020s, but like now it's up to whatever comes after Gen Z. It's a really important moment now. And I'm sure everyone in their 40s says like, it's a really important, every generation probably says that, but it's also like incumbent upon people who've like been around for a bit and do have more time ahead because it's like, we're not... A lot of us are burnt out, but like we're not burnt out enough that we really don't care, but we're also not so starry eyed that like we don't assume that other people before us have not tried it yet. Mm. Yeah. And we're doing so with new information and new resources and new conversations. So even though, I mean, I think that's part of why I appreciate so much like your book coming out now is that I feel like we as a sector have other tools to digest this framework and think about this framework. And there's a lot, even like seeing healing as a pillar of leadership and revisiting that perhaps in a conversation where we're having a more global conversation about mental health and wellness and healing and all of those things. It just allows us I think, to apply this framework in unique ways. And that will be true in five years and that will be true in 10 years. But I think it is a really important moment for us to be looking at how this framework integrates with how we show up, how our organizations are run. And for me, it really comes back to this guiding principle that I have in my work, which is way less about what am I doing and way more about who am I being Like, I don't know when it happened, but like a few years ago, I sort of had this moment where I was like, you know what? Like, I can't judge myself or track myself based on what I'm doing every day because that's always different. And what I'm doing is impacted by so many different things outside of my control. And I can do the best that I can that day with what's available to me. The thing I do have a lot of control over is like who I'm being. And in all of those days of different doing, am I being the person, the leader, the friend that I want to be? And I think your book really talks about and helps us think about like, who are we being in all of the diversity of moments presented to us? Yeah, what is that? It was in a movie or something. We're not human doings, we're human beings. I am 99.9% on the page with you. And I'm sure you've seen this too, is that especially in this age where we've got this, by the research that I've seen, we have four, technically five different generations of people working together in the workforce, which people are living longer and money isn't going as far as it used to. So those people who traditionally would have retired between 63 and 67 and a half are now working well into their 70s and 80s. We had one of the founding directors at an organization I used to be at retired at like 83. And he had been on a very long retirement. He had done like the lead central research for the organization, but brilliant donors loved him. 
and there was no issue with him sticking around, but you have early to mid 80 year olds working with people who are sometimes 60 years younger than them. I remember it was an organization I was doing just a little bit of like light coaching with, and I was kind of like a fractional force in there. And there was a, I was listening to a recent episode with uh, Ray Wong interviewed another Wong, Dr. Wong about like mental health and things. And like this disparity between like what the younger generations come to the table feeling they deserve, which is not wrong. But the issue with like the human being versus human doings, it's like there was one day where I had a colleague that I was trying to find. She was like all of 20 or 21 years old, fresh out of college. And I just couldn't find her for like 36 hours. Wasn't on Slack, wasn't on Zoom, didn't come to the office, thought she was dead in a ditch somewhere. Wasn't picking up her phone, wasn't responding to texts. And then the next day she like signed on to Zoom or whatever it was. It was like, good morning. And I was like, you're alive? What What happened? And the response was, oh, I just needed a day, you know, I was feeling away. And I'm like, no issue with that whatsoever. I'm so glad you felt comfortable enough to take it. But the human doing part, like that 0.01% that I talked about, like if we have organizations filled with people who are just so emotionally aware, but like we choose to work in a 501c3, like part of the reason human beings have been able to evolve so well is that we communicate. We talk across the board about like, and that's how we see silos, like comms teams, not talking to fundraising teams, not talking to operations team. And that's like the ship doesn't work well if everyone's just being, if there's no through line. And so it really is organizations are people. Like that's why when we did our work together, it's like you get down to the processes and the people, like it's often people driven. But one of the things, and some of the reasons I point to such practical notions in my work, in my research is like, there is a same pageness that we all can be. I want everyone to be safe and psychologically cared for and all that stuff. But like, we need to find a way to communicate that across the organization. So we don't assume that like a development assistant has been kidnapped because they disappeared for a day and a half. Yeah, there's a lot of recalibration that needs to happen. And it's complicated. I mean, I'm curious, like how you think about that in terms of servant leadership in the book, like the relationship between the individual fundraisers call to action around how they can apply this framework and this learning and organizations or the sector wide call to action around sort of how we create the environments for people to be able to step into leadership in this way. If I can be part of the journey to solve for that, I'll be, I think, a very wealthy human being. For folks who listen to this show, they're likely familiar with Michelle Flores Frin, who is a friend and colleague of mine here in Texas. She and I, we are both chief development officers for like organizations. Ironically, we both used to work for the same consultancy here in Houston. She left Houston, but is still in Texas. She and I, one of, I think, the unique things that we bring to this conversation, and this may have been we're getting at the beginning of, of our chat today, is that there are very few people who are expert like you who have left the full-time in-house work to coach and consult. You have a calling for it, and you and I have spoken openly that you were like, I didn't necessarily want to make that shift, but you have this rare gift. Like Robert De Niro, right? You got a gift. You got a gift. Michelle and I have been trying to bat back and forth this idea about like, we're looking at things like leadership writ large. And when I talk about leadership, I talk about the influence of the people who are making decisions at the bottom end and the top end. I don't speak of leadership as authoritative thing, like the chief executive, whatever. There's conversations about the workload. And then there's conversations about loot, the money, revenue. You can't, 1.8 million nonprofits can't all be volunteer driven. Like they're businesses, they're registered businesses. We have to make sure that we are solvent. 
how do we focus on the 1%, 2% shifts? And maybe it's like, how do you inspire people in healthcare to think in the same way that they might in higher ed or arts and culture or other social services? I mean, 12 plus million people, third largest employment sector in the States are working at upwards of 2 million nonprofits. And that includes private charities and things. It is a massive industry. And we talk about internal organizations being siloed. Healthcare doesn't do what higher ed does. Higher ed doesn't do what these other organizations do. And so when you think about the 100,000 or so fundraisers, that work in nonprofits. It's like fewer than 1% of all nonprofit employees are in fundraising. You can't say that like 1.8 million organizations have 100,000 fundraisers spread evenly across them. Cause like higher ed, you'll have development alumni relations teams of like 109 people. And then like the little theater over here has like one halftime development associate who's doing everything and cleaning the floor. So I think some of this is the servant leadership stuff. It's like, if you lead from a place of conceptual awareness and then you realize, okay, we don't have a problem here, but we have donors who have been, we haven't looked at the data. We have got like Mallory was back in 2010, she was making three years of $100 gifts. Then she went to 250 for two years and then she went to 500. No one ever thought enough to say, actually, there's kind of a intrinsic moves management happening. We're not part of it, but we can improve on that. And so to even know to be conceptually focused on that and build your awareness and back to the continuum, the awareness building through listening and empathy, like that's where you listen. And if imagine all 12 million nonprofiteers in the US like dove into, not in my book necessarily, but dove into these core behaviors, Let's think of like a religion, like in any religion focuses on its core text as the baseline for everything to raise up from. I believe like in my heart of hearts that like one of the ways we can solve for some of the inequities, burnout issues, the fact that fundraisers move every 16 to 18 months and it's not all about money anymore. If servant leadership could be that comfy memory foam mattress that like gets everyone feeling good about this work. And I think it might also help people put things on what I call the chopping block. Like, okay, grant funder gave us hundred grand to do this project. Not a single person in here knows how to do it. So we're going to subcontract 90,000 of that hundred grand to an external partner. Grant funding is not coming back next year. So now we've built like a sixth thing on top of the four things, plus the strategic plan that we're already doing. How do we conceptualize that maybe one person per month is resigning from this organization? People are like, yeah, but the budget's still growing. We're still fundraising. Yeah, you've got a brand new fundraiser every 18 months having to relearn, relearn, rethink, rejig. Servant leadership has all of these little Easter eggs in it. How to be more self-aware through listening and empathy. How you focus on healing relationships with donors, but also by focusing on taking the PTO that your organization makes available for you. It's all interwoven, man. It's all connected. Yeah. I mean, gosh, there's so many things you said that just sort of had different types of light bulbs going off in my head. And I, so much of what you're talking about is like in direct conflict with this sentence that we so often hear in our sector, which is that's just the way things are. And I think what you're really pushing people to say or think about is like, why? Why is that the way things have been? What's the overarching beliefs, frameworks, conceptualization that's keeping you trapped in that belief that that has to always be the way it is. And that's keeping your awareness tunnel visioned 
on these sort of like self-fulfilling prophecies, constraining your listening skills, constraining your empathy, then not allowing you to be able to shift your perspective or believe that there's a different reality out there. And I think because there are, even though conceptualization is this sort of like underlying piece, it also feels like there are a lot of entry points to servant leadership. So like if people are struggling to think about how one of the pillars or two of the pillars really applies to them, there are just a lot of different entry points that they can play with and try. And you do such a good job in the book of being like, here are three strategies for each thing, three things to try for each thing that I think give people like can whet people's appetite around like what the framework looks like in their day-to-day reality. I tried. I believe this is an evolving journey. And I just, I had a copy of the book next to me and I flipped through the pages. The book is sort of split between, it's like 80-20. 80% of the book is that really practical, the blueberries, the chocolate chips. Like you can do all these things and I believe it'll help you do certain things like stewardship and other things better. There are 16 pages. I mean, the book itself is under 90 pages. There are 16 pages at the front end of the book that give a very basic, like if you're like servant leadership sounds interesting, buy the book and just read the first 16 pages. It'll give you, I think, the world's most succinct description of what this philosophy is, how it's a little bit different, and why it really could be one of those things that focus on overall improvement. This two things in there, commitment to the growth of people and then building community. For folks like us who've been around for a bit and have seen good managers and good leaders do it, like those are sort of intrinsically linked. Like one of the behaviors I had to shift early when I got into this notion of believing that servant leadership was great. It's like, if I had one-on-one meetings with my staff, it was always like, I set the meeting time. I wrote the agenda, saved five minutes at the end of the hour long meeting, because let's face it, right. It was probably an hour long meeting. Oh, do you, Mallory, do you have anything you want to talk about? And what I had to painfully do is say, all right, Mallory is not my ward, but I am responsible for ensuring that Mallory thrives and grows here. And that might mean that over time she does so well that she has to leave. These meetings are now Mallory's meetings. Mallory sets the time, sets the agenda. Mallory tells me what we're going to talk about. If we don't need the meeting, Mallory tells me we cancel it. I was so uncomfortable with that. The first several months I did it because I was always used to this like go first sentiment, the rock and roll lead singer. Like that was my bent. And I found over time that my meetings got shorter, people felt more empowered, and I can't tell you how many people I've promoted out of the organization because like, there was nothing else. And this really has very little to do with me. It's just I got out of my own darn way because like, why? what does Steve Jobs or whoever said? Like, you don't hire people. You can't hire an independent contractor right, and tell them, like, you have to do this between these hours and like use our computer and that stuff. Like, I think we sometimes need to think of like the 1099 men's mindset in W2 environments. Like we hire really groovy people, man, and they're super smart. And I keep pointing back to this, like it's the one thing that I think could help. Let's use the definition of leaders that are managers, you know, people in higher positional authority. One of the, the issues that I think we find is this notion of like Dunning-Kruger met with Peter Principle, like people who are just really not equipped to be overseeing people-oriented things. Like they're really great at the process stuff, like great widget makers who are now in charge of eight widget makers. It's like, you know, in nonprofits, maybe they could do it, but the chief widget maker left a year ago. And so there was no overlap. That new chief widget officer is in charge of widget makers and like no one ever trained them how to do it it's just like you're good at widgets do this manage these people and keep it under budget and it's not always their fault i think more often than not people end up in those roles there's so many if people 
tune over to the IdeaCast, Harvard Business Review. Look at any of their podcast episodes that just have the word leadership in it. They all give really good, and your show too, and, and good shows like this. But I like HBR because it gives me like a different flavor. Like, how do our friends in the real world do it? We're in the real world, but I try not to ever make the mistake of like trying to solve for nonprofit things by only looking. Like if we're doing the SWOT analysis, like you have to look to our friends who are in the first and the second largest employment sectors. We might be the third, but like, how are our friends in farming doing this? You know, how are the sock makers doing this? Maybe there is some conceptual awareness too by listening outside of our comfort zones. Yeah. Okay. There's so much good advice in everything that you just said. And, you know, one of the things that you said before that I, or that sparked something that I was thinking about before is just around like the evolving notion of our leadership, no matter what positionality we're in. And so I want to encourage folks who maybe don't even yet see themselves as a leader to check out this book and to learn more about servant leadership, because I really think like the identity we hold or don't hold with that word, because maybe we're not in a positional leadership role yet inside our organization, often holds us back from strengthening the skills that when we do move into more positional leadership roles, we sort of think that our direct experience in the work is what we needed to get there. But like you're alluding to, oftentimes there's this big gap and we haven't actually been given the tools and skills of what that leadership role entails. And so I just want to encourage people, like grab the book, check out the book, learn about servant leadership early and let yourself grow into it and let it evolve with you, no matter the role that you're in. Where should people go to grab the book? I wish they could walk down the block to their neighborhood independent bookstore. You could, and they would order it for you. But the links to all the places where you can find the book is at thenonprofiteers.com. For my friends who want to get it in like a day or two, you can find it on Amazon. If you like waiting a little bit longer but supporting independent stuff, there's bookshop.org. I mean, it's it's all the places you might want to find a book. And I think there's even a Kindle or an electronic book version through the publisher as well. Amazing. And where can folks best connect with you if they're interested in working with you, maybe having you come into their organization to do a workshop on servant leadership, one of the pillars or something they're particularly grappling with, where should they go to connect with you? Same website is great, thenonprofiteers.com. There's like a link to all my stuff there, but I'm the joke I always make is I'm the yellow hue bearded Evan Wildstein on LinkedIn. There's a few Evan Wildsteins, but I'm the one with the beard and my picture is yellow. I complain or vent or offer thought advice a lot on LinkedIn. I think there's a lot of stuff that can be improved upon. And so like three to four times a week, I'm on there griping about something. But those are two good places that folks can find me in this virtual kingdom. Amazing. Thank you so much for spending this time with me today, talking through all of this. I feel like we could have had a four-hour episode. <laughs> I'm holding myself back from asking all the additional questions that I want, but I feel like this hopefully gets people excited to learn more and dive in and figure out how this framework can support their work, you know, matter where they're at in their journey. So thank you so much. I believe it can. Thank you. Was a pleasure. You already know what I'm going to say. There is so much inside this episode that I love, but here are a few of my very favorite takeaways. Number one, servant leadership can drive transformative change in the nonprofit sector by shifting focus to service and empathy. Number two, 
Empathy plays a significant role in nonprofit fundraising, guiding the formation of meaningful connections with donors and beneficiaries. But a lot of times, the way that we think about empathy is short-sighted. Number three, understanding and sharing the feelings of others allows for compassionate, efficient communication, encouraging generous donations and long-term relationships. Number four, Conceptualization acts as a cornerstone in effective leadership, allowing leaders to identify opportunities for improvement and formulate innovative solutions. I love the way that conceptualization is talked about in Evan's book and in servant leadership in general. And then lastly, by cultivating conceptualization skills, leaders in the nonprofit sector can navigate challenges proactively and implement robust strategies that align with their organization's mission. Okay, for additional takeaways and tips inside this episode, head on over to malloryerickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Evan and our amazing sponsors, Constant Contact. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to malloryerickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.